Hey y'all, Alex Barinka here, head of external affairs at Vera Shop and host of Finding Inspo, the first shoppable podcast where we'll bring you the stories of some of the biggest names in style and design, digging deep into how they turn inspiration into successful businesses. And each week, my guests and I curate the Finding Inspo shop only at verashop.com slash inspo with the products that emerge from their personal stories. My guest today is just over a year into starting his own denim company, but his experience in the industry spans years prior. Jordan Nodarce founded Boyish Denim in 2018 after working on brands including Reformation and the girlfriend denim line for Revolve. Now, striking out on his own, Jordan's focus at Boyish is vintage-inspired women's jeans. But the brand isn't just about turning out nostalgically chic garments. He has implemented ethical and sustainable practices at every step of creating a pair of his jeans from the get-go, a rare move for a new brand. It's a culmination of values Jordan has accumulated from his years in the industry, which arguably started with a pair of scissors when he was back in high school. I was still in high school, and I was um, playing music. So I wanted like that Bruce Springsteen look and, you know, the cover. I always remember like that cover, too, of like one of his records where he was like in the pair of Levi's jeans and... Yeah, because I think the only person that was making jeans back then was like Eddie Salon when he was just started doing like Dior Homme. Those that never be able to afford buying a pair <laughs> of those, let alone would I ever. I still think to this day right now, I still don't think I'd spend that much on a pair of jeans. <laughs> so you found a pair of wide leg boot cut, perhaps cut them down to skinnies. Yeah, it's funny. There's so many boot cut jeans that was like back then. Yeah. So that's what I'd do a lot of times is like buy, you know, like the boot cut or the the baggier ones and just cut out the inseam what we call like the caballo and then I'd use my mom's sewing machine I must have broken that machine like two or three times and had to get repaired until I finally went and bought an industrial one because I started realizing you know that I can sell those jeans to my friends that played in bands and I would make more than if I went to play a show and make $15 $30 a night I was like oh yeah I can just sell one pair of jeans to one of my friends who actually probably plays in a band that was decently was making money and can buy a pair of jeans for I would sell them to them for like $50, which I thought was ridiculous. But so guess, your your music career died in sacrifice for your uh, new obsession with denim. Oh, yeah. I feel like every kid wants to be some sort of musician or whatever. I think as you get older and you start, I started going to community college and taking classes and you start to be like, what what am I really going to make money doing? And then I ended up in LA and then I met a friend and we, we wanted to start a company and we're just like, well, why don't we make skinny jeans? So we started like a, a line of jeans and, and then that was right around that 2007, 2008 era. So that was fun because, you know, nothing was doing well at that point in time. And So that was your first endeavor, creating your own business. Yeah. What w- how did you approach it then? That particular time, I was doing colored jeans. So we had like 23 colors from what I remembered. And uh, we found like a distributor in Japan. So he was distributing it out there, which was kind of cool because in the U.S., I feel like we were maybe a little bit ahead of that sort of trend. And then just, I mean, we were, I was, what, 21, so just wasn't able to learn how to run a business and survive in an economic world depression. What did you think you wanted to be known for then? I don't think I was even thinking. <laughs> just trying to survive. I think you were just, yeah, just doing at that point, yeah. just. So what was the life cycle like of that company that you started back in 2007, 2008? We started in 2007 and must have stopped in 2009. Yeah, that was a pretty quick up and down. Uh, partially, perhaps, because of the times. Yeah, and also just being young in general. Like, 
you're working against every odds when you don't know how to do anything and up against like a big industry. And that's when I learned that how difficult it is to make jeans because of all the odds and ends and sizing inventory and, and all that fun stuff. Where did you go from there? I ended up working with a company called Them Atelier, which was a fun brand. They did like a magazine and they made jeans. And it was funny because they're actually doing colored jeans and stuff like that. And the gentleman that was running that company, Brian, he was one of the few people in L.A. that knew how to make jeans from pattern to sewing it and washing it all. And so that was pretty cool because I learned a lot about patterns from him and uh, was able to apply my already knowledge of, of making jeans and mix that all in there. So I learned a lot about things that designers don't normally do themselves that rely on other people for folks who are not uh of the denim world like myself what's the difference from somebody who makes it from pattern all the way through to garment uh versus what the rest of the world was doing at the time well i mean i still think to even nowadays there's very few people in the world that probably know how to make a pattern and know how to maybe sew a jean at the same time uh and be able to do a wash or at least design a wash maybe even use a button revert machine um we used to finish all of our own garments like um not all of our production but like our samples and stuff and so i think just i think just in general having like a business in la is an interesting format because you end up with a sense of uh survival technique that you you have to do each little thing and so you typically end up learning a little bit more than most people probably do if they're working with a full package manufacturer overseas. Why do you think that's so specific to LA? Because you keep everything local? Because you do have your hands on everything? Why do you think that's something that's so unique to to that experience? Yeah, I mean, if you think of it like a backyard, you can just walk right into it. So I think having these factories very close to you gives you the capability to be able to learn how your garments are, are made, not just in the extent of working with them, but seeing it, being there firsthand, uh, you know, and that's one thing that I feel I'm fortunate that I can do that, that I'm in a city where we had that in, we, I say had because it's kind of dying, but we still do have it. I learned a lot from the people in the factories. You know, a lot of people always ask me like, oh, where did you go to school? And I'm like, I didn't. I, I just asked a lot of questions and, you know, I watch people put things together and, you know, you've seen enough bad and enough good that you kind of figure out the distinguished difference between the two and and what it takes to get to either one. And, and I'm interested because at the beginning when you were in high school, you, you wanted skinny jeans, you needed them. It was kind of a, you went out on your own to figure out how to make this because you couldn't find them anywhere. When you moved on, uh, it was, was it still that same? You couldn't find what you wanted? What was the urge for you to stay in denim? What really got you hooked about the industry? I probably would say I was dating a girl and she had a bunch of like vintage Levi's and I thought that they were like really it was the most unique thing to me considering a person that was making jeans I was always looking at the premium denim world because I kind of grew up in that and the premium denim world was very modern it was like a modern take on what was classic denim previously and so when I started getting back into making jeans again for myself I was like I want to make jeans that are more unique to what's in the market and then so I ended up working with Revolve as a consultant and started making jeans for a few of the lines that they had like Lovers and Friends and Tularosa and uh, they were originally going to work with a couple other people in the industry to build this other denim brand which was the reason why I came in there to help them do that that ended up falling through so they ended up having me build a brand for them which was Girlfriend and so that was 
kind of uh, a unique experience because originally it all started with like they wanted me to make jeggings and so it's like you, sometimes in the industry even what what you want to do or even a, a project as much as you might think you have creative control you're still kind of working within the constraints of where the uh, the trends are or, or what the companies might think that they need or you know et cetera, et cetera. when did you kind of become conscious that perhaps there are better ways to do things it's funny consciousness is something that never really comes out in defining moments per se for a lot of people some people might have a very defining moment for me it was just kind of a years on years of of the more you kind of open your eyes to look at the sun the more you start to realize the glare and how it hurts your eyes so uh, I guess that was uh one of the things with me was, you know, I, I, the more I learned, the more I opened my eyes and see the way the industry was, the more I start to learn what you can and cannot do, what looks good, what doesn't look good, and then, you know, like what's wasteful and what wasn't wasteful. Uh, sustainability, when you, when you think about it, the essence of it is just efficiency. So really in the fundamentals of, of looking at a supply chain, if you really break it down, you just want to make it the most efficient and then therefore becomes, you know, the least amount of wastefulness. But... I think fashion is kind of necessarily people don't want to think about that. So they just want to think about what they want and not really the impact of what comes out of that want. And, and especially going back to even just five years ago when you started consulting at Revolve, I think that uh, in the broader consciousness, there was there was less thought about sustainability. There was less thought about what's going into things. It does seem like uh, people have at least started to open their eyes, or some people have started to open their eyes. How would you characterize the industry back in 2013 when you um, started working with Revolve on their uh, denim lines? It's probably still like a uh, very new. Uh, you know, people are still, I mean, I still feel like it's 2019, I still feel like it's new. So, I mean, uh, the real passion of, of sustainability, looking at the past to the present, is really just people just doing it because not, not because you know, like, oh, I want to do it. It's just more because it becomes a, a need and then it influences other people by opening their eyes. And and you did end up stopping over uh, at a shop that does care more about sustainability. After you at Revolve, you moved over to Reformation. Reformation. Yeah. How did you make that jump and, and, and what did you learn from the process of working with them? I mean, when you go to work for a company that has such strong values like Reformation, it's really where you probably were my most fortunate exercises of sustainability happened i mean i was able to work on you know fibers and do things that my previous companies would they would have not cared about and you know if if i was trying to spend two dollars more on fabric to to use some sort of new material that uses recycled waste from fast fashion manufacturers in a process that utilizes 99.9 percent of the material that goes into making it they wouldn't give two shits um excuse my language um (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of companies, that, that's kind of the foundation of sustainability is, you know, this efficiency value. You know, it's not just the environment. It's not just the people. It's not just reducing waste. It's a lot of things. It's, it's price. It's, it's what you do with the company. It's, it's what you inspire, what your, your mission is. One of my things with coming from Reformation was I was doing these amazing things, and I realized even with the denim that, you know, I wasn't able to buy denim from people because the the constraints of what sustainable denim was the mills weren't really able to make it because the brands didn't really care so I was able to just to make the fabrics with the mills and design them to work in, in our sort of constraints and I was like this was actually wasn't that difficult when you really think about it and why I, do you think no one else had ever done that before 
well, because people don't care enough to probably figure it all out. I suppose that's where like I'm, I'm, I get kind of geeky and I like to, ever since I was a kid, I would take apart everything. I, my mom would buy me stuff for Christmas or my birthday and a month, a couple months later, I'd be taking it apart. I'm sure she <laughs> loved that. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, you know, because you can't put it back together and uh, as much as you want. But I always was always very interested in figuring out how things were made. Obviously, you, you learned a lot of these key things from your time at Reformation. It seems like you, you did enjoy your time there. When did you decide to leave? Well, I worked with them for as long as I could. I mean, I, I loved working with them. It was an amazing team, very inspirational, everyone there. Like, I, I came from working for, you know, companies where there's a lot of drama. Um, it felt like more high school than it did a workplace. So it was a fresh breath of air going to work for somewhere there where I felt empowered and and um, having a sense of uh, maturity there that you can really focus not just on creating beautiful products, but figuring out a way to maybe recreate products in a new way. It was never a format of whose idea it is or or this or that. It was always like a collaborative team effort, which I really liked it. Working with people that were very hands-on and technical was always very inspirational to me. You don't meet a lot of companies and or, you know, designers like Yale that can, you know, speak Spanish and, you know, hire sewing contractors and build her own factory and also at the same point in time make it as transparent as it was and at the same time make everything look pretty and with extremely strict resource sort of uh, compositions with her fabrics and and even auditing her factories uh, every three months that they use outside of their own factory well and they also audit, audit their own but yeah and so. and it's been it hasn't been very long that sustainable and chic have been synonymous no, I mean, still, it seems like somewhat of a golden egg for a lot of people. If you think of a product, it needs to last to be sustainable. So you can never make a product sustainable, but not really good quality or, 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 or you know, good looking. And it needs to be loved. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it also needs to have a life after it. Like one of my favorite concepts uh, in this industry is cradle to cradle. I was always like, when I first came into Reformation, I realized they weren't using enough recycled materials and I wanted to use more recycled materials. Made 100% recycled shirts and sweatshirts and then started recycling some of the highest contents of recycled cotton in denim. So we are able to, you know, increase our recycled content to like 40%, which is um, a lot of people didn't want to do that. And we didn't, you know, we tested different ways of doing it. So it's this whole chain effect of uh, the more waste you create, the more problems it creates. So Cradle to Cradle kind of creates more of a circularity of designing products that are built to then be rebirthed again into a new process. And uh, so that was always very much like something that spoke to me. And Let's take a quick break from my chat with Boyish Denim founder Jordan Nodarcy. I wanted to remind you that like every Finding Inspo episode, this one is also shoppable. Jordan and I have curated items from our conversation and a few others that are inspiring us lately for the special Finding Inspo store on Vera Shop. Next to each product, we'll also tell you why we're loving it. You can shop the looks at verashop.com slash inspo. And just for Finding Inspo listeners, new Vera Shop customers can take 20% off their first purchase with the code INSPOJN. This week, Jordan pulled together two full outfits from our assortment at Vera Shop to pair with a couple of styles of boyish jeans. I'm already adding them to my cart. Coming up, we'll talk through how Boyish is changing the status quo in denim manufacturing. And we'll dig into which eras inspired the cuts the brand is known for. 
you learned so much from Reformation. You say you waited as long as you could. You stayed there as long as you could before you uh, you jumped ship. What was the catalyst for you to finally strike out on your own? Education, I think, and more um, motivation. I think those would be the two things. Like, oh, oh so that's kind of I now I kind of remember <laughs> I just got back from traveling for four weeks for work like to eight different cities so I was, and I've only been sleeping like three hours a night so I'm like in that point where so there's that there's points where you kind of just like lose yes. a little bit of yes. that train of thought you're like I ended up here but I can't remember how I got here yep the, the that, train left the station yeah. you just don't know what the station of origination was yeah which is actually kind of an interesting story with sustainability because you'll end up like that in many situations when you're trying to find a solution to, you know, something, some sort of problem or, you know, just a solution to a product you want to create, but in a better way. And you just, it's like a rabbit hole. You sometimes don't even know how you got there, but you're like, well, this is kind of interesting. You find ways to to make it work. I'm picking up the best kind of obsessiveness from you. And I think that that (laughs) would be one of the fears, right? Is you do go so deep in the weeds. You do go so far down the rabbit hole. You can't see the sunlight anymore. I I guess, how do you use that to your advantage as you are, um, you know, you're kind of taking up a, a, a fight of your own to change the industry. You have been very vocal about sustainability and about better practices. How do you make sure that you're still coming back to that bottom line, to your kind of uh, marching mission? I've always been a fan of principle. So, you know, with me, with the education and motivation sort of atmosphere was, you know, Reformation was an extremely powerful company when it comes down to influence. I see full-on brands that are, you know, pop up that are pretty much just giant knockoffs, but in cheap polyester versions. It came from a company right before Reformation that made the same price dress, but they made it in China with polyester. That was a knockoff of a dress that you can buy from Reformation at the same price, but it's in Blue Sign certified eco silk that's made in Los Angeles with a factory that pays people living wages and gives them benefits and even gives them ESL classes and citizenship classes and things like that. And you can go there and once a month they do factory tours. If you wanted to actually go see it, you can. There's no excuses for people with quality or price or, you know, there's enough examples out there. And that's why it's like maybe just telling the story or or helping people kind of get there is maybe more so what needs to happen. So I feel like I can do more in a format of being both educational but at the same point making products and in being cute about it so that's kind of our our mission there with our marketing is you know every month we you know besides all the sustainable things we do in manufacturing is you know we do our cool to care programs which is kind of built to teach people that it's cooler to care about these sort of things than it is to go around the world partying with other influencers on you know not one yacht but two yachts or having a festival or, you know, like spending a bunch of money on these things that just promotes women to not necessarily be better women, but that you should strive to do this in life, which is doing no good for humanity or themselves. And so it was also, it started becoming an outlet to where it was just something that we're doing for our team as a team bonding thing. And then several influencers saw us that we were doing it. So then we started inviting influencers there and it became kind of, um, you know, a catalyst to promote like the volunteer you know, caring about things and inspiring others to do it. And uh, so what we try to do is not just talk about what we're doing or showing people, like, look what we're doing, but 
the reason why we're doing it. Well, and I think most people don't like to be told what they're doing is wrong. I think to get to a better place, they need to believe that what they want to do is the thing that's right. Mm -hmm. Have you run into that as you're trying to educate folks uh, around the idea of utilizing more sustainable denim, utilizing recycled materials, not just buying something because it says organic, but buying something because they actually are doing better for kind of the broader uh, community? Yeah, I mean, as a new brand, we're very restricted by what we can and cannot do because of obviously resources, you know, limited amounts of funding, um, you know, limited amounts of people that work on our team, uh, and also just, you know, limited access to to, uh, outlets to, you know, like we're pretty much restricted to just Instagram and our website to a certain extent, because even then like adjusting our website all the time to be putting new content on it is still expensive, you know? So we try to treat our Instagram as a little bit of a, you know, digital outlet, you know, sort of semi quasi blog or, you know, magazine publication sort of concept. So every week, you know, we try to deliver information. We, we, we see the influence on it. We see how it's reacting. And, you know, we try to figure out what works and what people do like and what people don't like. Uh, we try not to be shove it down people's throats. We don't judge people for what they do. You know, it's it's all, at the end of the day, it's like we just do it for ourselves. It's not like we're doing it because it's like gaining extra sales. I think most of the things that we do probably cost us more money and more time <laughs> than it does probably get us anywhere. But I think it's that's what it takes with passion. And I always tell people with sustainability, it's like, you better be passionate for about this because it's not easy. <laughs> well, and that's the answer to, like, why continue to do those things, right? Because to your point, there are Reformation knockoffs, and people still buy them even though they don't uphold the same values. There there are other denim companies, and people still buy them because they don't uphold the same values as Boyish. It, passion is a very uh, widely used word. Break down what that actually does mean to you. What does your passion look like in terms of what you're doing here at Boyish? In a sort of one sentence, I would say it would be making a quality garment that makes a woman feel good when she's wearing it, both on the outside and the inside. And, uh, you know, that goes down to the ethics of the company and as well as, like, the quality of the product and how it fits. So at the end of the day, if we can make a girl's butt feel good, then she feels good because the money that she's putting behind it is going into not just, you know, putting money into some old sleazy man's pocket that's just going to go out and buy another, you know, supercar and then sexually harass the women that work for him. So it's it's kind of a new way of doing business that we want to we wanna promote people to challenge them and hope that they also look at new ways of doing business and uh that's the future you know sustainability people might call it a trend but it's to us it's more of a movement and it's more than just about being sustainable or efficient it's about being environmentally conscious like our path and our mission is to become carbon neutral so it's like we do more than just making jeans we do you know our cooler care programs Um, every time you buy jeans on our website we plant one tree for every purchase. Uh, we work with the 1% for the planet. We've been a 1% for the planet partner actually since we started the company, which is definitely not easy trying to donate money from the get-go because you're like, we're actually not making money and we're donating. Like This is kind of the opposite of what probably a business should be. But because you start off with it all, you're incorporating it into a budget atmosphere where we have to make this work. 
no different than you're like we have to pay our energy bill to have electricity to have wi-fi to be able to work no different than you have to give one it's one percent such a tiny amount you really have turned on its head what you think a company should be and that does also go down to your supply chain to your manufacturing talk me through how you have thought about uh actually from end to end what these genes that are surrounding us right now how they start uh and how they go through the process of becoming the beautiful thing that will look great on my booty when i wear it out on friday night uh Denim is, a lot of it is the wash that makes it look what it is. A lot of resources go into those washes, including a lot of chemicals. So with us, when we looked at this process, we wanted, or originally with, in general, when I looked at this process, even before I was focused on environmentally conscious products, it's kind of the concept of Dieter Ram's design philosophy, which is less is more. You know, and I, 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 that, that saying always resonates with me because I think, all right, you know, if I can use the least amount of chemicals on this gene, it tends to look the best. And if I can, the fabrics that I use that don't have petroleum-based fibers like polyester or polyurethane in it tend to wash better. And guess what? When you don't have polyurethane or polyester or polyamide or whatever sort of petroleum-based fibers in your genes, you can utilize that fabric afterwards. So the gene afterwards has a life. And this, the scraps and the industrial waste that you're utilizing in your upcycling process is reducing your impact on the earth. And, you know, so to me, these are all benefits. And then by designing your supply chain, you're not just I'm literally just sending a design to a factory. I'm just going to let the factory choose the fabric. You know, and that's a lot of people think, oh, transparency and transparency because we can see where the factory is that sews the garments. And I'm like, that's like, Opening, cracking a door open four inches and looking in a room that doesn't even have any lights on. It's like you haven't even stepped into the supply chain. Uh, these, this industry is very old, and uh, it's hard to change. It pays itself back in the end, but it always takes a little bit of that effort, whether it's labor or, or actual capital to do it. But, you know, for instance, like laundry machines in a, in a denim laundry, if you use the newer machines that use up to 80 or 90% less water, it actually saves you money in the long run, but it costs money to buy the new machines. But as does any business, you have to put money into it to get out of it. So maybe it just becomes down to people being a little bit more short-sighted. What does this have to do with me right now? Not even what does this have to do with me in the next 10 years or 20 years? People don't even think that far ahead anymore. I really like how you thought about it where right off the bat, like you said, it's, it's just like paying your energy bill. It was just part of it. It's just part of how you're going to operate. Um, it might seem like incremental increased costs at the beginning, but it was part of the structure you were laying the groundwork for, for your business itself. How do you, how would you give advice to anyone else who is in this industry, who is founding or is already uh, overseeing a business and would like to move into a, a place where you are doing better for uh, all of these touch points that you're hitting, but are nervous about perhaps justifying that to other stakeholders uh, at the beginning. It's not perfection. It's progress. That's the best advice I can give anybody. I mean, I may talk like you know, what people might say. I may talk a big game or whatever it is, but I'm not perfect either. You know, but the, we're learning every day. Like, how can we do things better? And, and a lot of times learning how to do something better requires you to do something 
you know, worse or make a mistake, uh, which, you know, kind of comes down to the Buddhist philosophy that life is suffering. There's always going to be obstacles in front of you, and you have a choice to whether accept that obstacle uh, as a challenge or accept that obstacle as, you know, holding you back in life and that that it shouldn't be there, and then you end up in the whole shoulda, woulda, coulda business and become negative, and, you know, that becomes a clouding your future. Where if you look at things in positive ways that, you know, each challenge happens, you grow stronger, then you start to learn more. And, uh, you know, that requires trying things. So the more organized you are and you try to set things up, the more successful you can be. So so take me back then to um, the first pair of boyish jeans that you created in your new company. You've been in the industry for a minute. You know your way around. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that first pair that you tackled? When I left Reformation, I was making very technical fabrics that I don't think even they understood. I barely even understood <laughs> them. And actually, you know, I think I took me a little while to understand what I was doing. I felt like kind of sometimes I felt a little bit like Homer Simpson in that one episode where he meets his brother and his brother has a car company and he gets to design a car. Yeah, uh, but in other, in other terms, I wanted to create a brand that educates and inspires people but also shows them the, how feasible it is. You know, and I did this with zero resources. Like when I was when I launched Girlfriend, I had Revolve. When I did Reformation, I had already a backbone. So it's like, and these were all direct consumer outlets where I had not just a way to sell product, but I had information, which means something sold. I get a new. I knew what was selling. I knew what other stuff sold in other categories that wasn't denim to be able to judge me to make me more successful. And I did this with zero information, and I wanted to create a product that was sustainable for the wholesale market because currently a lot of the brands there are sustainable and most of them are direct to consumer and so i started with recycled cotton because the sustainable apparel coalition has the higgs index that they publish that kind of judges and rates fiber compositions on their impact based off of energy water consumption chemicals etc and uh, recycled cotton is at the top it doesn't require any water doesn't require any chemicals um doesn't require any land use or agriculture or anything. It just requires a little bit of energy to mechanically recycle it. And uh, and then we implemented that with, you know, BCI cotton, which I've learned a lot about in the last couple of years. The fundamentals of BCI, which stands for the Better Cotton Initiative, uh, are to teach farmers how to grow cotton better, which is, you know, how to reduce your water impact, how to reduce your usages of of chemicals how not to use formaldehyde you know workers rights and social capabilities and everything have to be to uh, governmental standards and stuff like that in this format we wanted to create a product that was both sustainable and sustainably priced sustainably made sustainably priced and that's always something that's on our mind i can make extremely expensive garments using the most sustainable stuff whatever sort of concept you can dream of in, in a make-believe world. But then a lot of people wouldn't be able to have have it. And, and and there's also a certain point to where I can't make things super cheap either because then it's going to be bad quality and it's going to fall apart and that's not sustainable either. And it also cheapens the product to where you know people feel like they can just throw it away and it doesn't feel valuable to them. I remember when people used to buy a jacket, I'm going to buy this jacket and it needs to last me 20 years or even longer. They, expect, they had high expectations. So I think that uh, these are forgotten sort of morality to fashion and how people shop. 
you know, so that was our first year as we transitioned with sustainability with Boyish and making our first jeans, starting off with the rigid denim, no polyester, no polyurethane, and completely uh, recycling in our, our waste. And we then moved into blending it with Tencel, uh, Lyocell, that comes from an amazing manufacturing facility out of Austria called Lenzing. And they have a really cool manufacturing process. And actually, when I visited the, their factory in Austria, I realized that this is what true sustainability is because it was completely circular. And they had found a use for everything that came out of the process because that was money. It's that concept of efficiency is, is not having waste. And without having waste, then you're not you know, you're reducing your impact. So one of the cool things about you know, we started blending Tencel with our recycled cotton and then now this next year, what we're using is we're using Refibra times Tencel, which is a recycled Lyle cell. So they're taking recycled scraps from the fast fashion retailers and recycling them through the cellulosic process that Tencel does. And it's beautiful because we're now incorporating more recycled content to our denim to where it's increasing our recycled content all the way up to around 70%. And has that changed the the feel, the hand feel of the denim? Yeah, so ten cell in general, the lyocell based fiber is is got a very soft and silky hand feeling to it. And when you blend it with cotton and in denim, it makes it actually feel more like a vintage pair of jeans. You know those you know jeans that you find at the vintage store or the flea markets or whatever it is, and you like, I tried twenty jeans on to finally find you. And then you wear it, but and then you wear it so much that probably within a couple months it rips because it's old and fragile, and and uh, most likely it was a man's jean, and you know he had a wallet or he was actually doing some work in it or something. So there's all those like areas that have now broken down. They have this like feeling that you can only get from washing jeans hundreds of times over a course of many years, and uh, those jeans are all natural too. They're all cotton. And so the great thing about Tencel is it comes from eucalyptus trees. and It's natural fiber. It actually has natural antimicrobial principles to it. And in addition to that, it gives it more strength. So recycled cotton is traditionally a subpar cotton strand that's shorter staple, so it's not as strong, which is the reason why a lot of people don't like to use it. So what we started doing was we started blending our recycled cotton with the Tencel and the Refibra fibers to help strengthen it so break down for me the aesthetic that you see boyish. What what does boyish as a line as a as a line communicate? Boyish's aesthetic is more geared around vintage garments. So we find old Levi's, Wranglers, Lees, um, Jordache, Jorbod, even Z Cavaricci, whatever sort of old school garments that we kind of find. We go back to that authenticity. So it's definitely an homage towards that. The name Boyish itself came from women buying men's jeans and the fact that this is something that's been going on for a long time. Jeans actually started in the beginning. They didn't make them for women. So women were buying men's jeans originally. And then they started making cuts for women to wear. But they were just the same fabric. They weren't washed or anything. They are very rigid. And so it's just it's the authenticity of it goes back to that fabric, which is like this rigid uh, denim that has this, you know, holding property. If you think of it kind of like a padded wire bra, comparing it to a triangle lace bra that has zero support. It's like, yeah, it looks cute, but it doesn't really give you any support. 
So, you know, we want something that kind of feels like it's more of a lifting, you know, lifting your butt versus just letting you, your butt go wherever it is. And at the same point in time, you know, it has that benefit of, of feeling authentic. Like, you know, you get those jeans and you're like, this feels more like a sweat pant or like a workout yoga pant than it does a jean. So we want something that kind of has the same feeling as your favorite pair of vintage jeans that you found that took you so long to find it, but without having to try on a thousand pairs, you can just try on one or two and, and find the perfect one. Do you have favorite cuts that you are uh, putting out there these days? So we're releasing our fall collection comes out next month and we have a fit called the Ziggy, which, uh, it's kind of like that nineties sort of baggy Levi's jean that, you know, girls used to wear in the nineties with like, the Adidas, forgot the version of that Adidas that had like yes. the, the rubber I had purple like, toe ones. cap. Yeah. Yep. They had them in a thousand colors. I remember, <laughs> I always remember like, what is it? Limp Biscuit. Always, he would always wear them. I'm like, that's the nineties. I remember sadly. It might be even early 2000s. And then there's the Tommy, which is kind of like our OG straight leg vintage jean. And it has like um, a similar cut to the Selvage Levi's denim that you would be able to find back in the day. That they just don't really make that sort of quality anymore of of jeans. So we want to kind of embrace that with women, though. So the way we cut our patterns is kind of cut like the vintage feel, but embraces more of the curves of a woman. Why go back to the 90s? Uh, I'm very inspired by the eras when denim was more true to being denim. Uh, So we go back to like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s a lot. Those four decades were probably the most unique to me with denim. Playing in a fast fashion world, it is a bit of a challenge to be looking backward. Yes, trends do come around, but I'm sure there are inherent challenges with not looking exactly like everything else that's out there today. How do you wrap your head around that idea? You find your aesthetic that maybe isn't necessarily your aesthetic, but it's like the customer that you're, you're, you're reaching to. I mean, I'm a man, so it's not like I'm like, these are the jeans I want to wear. You know, I don't wear these jeans because they're women's jeans, even though I probably could. But nonetheless, it's like the aesthetic that we want to go for, like our design principles and so, yeah, we always try to probably go the other way than everybody else is going. If everyone's trying to make stretchy, skinny jeans, then we want to make jeans that don't stretch. And I don't feel like this style of denim really goes out of fashion. It's been around for 100 years, and I don't think it's going anywhere. And and after hearing you talk through the thoughtfulness, the capital outlay, uh, all of the work that you put into uh, making your company as you thought it should be, it is a bit surprising when you do look at the price point of your jeans. They are extremely accessible, even given you know the fact that uh, you're not always taking the easy way out from a cost perspective. Talk to me about, again, the importance of, of making sure that uh, what you're putting out there is reachable for a lot of people. So I just wanted to make something that was like unique. And at the end of the day, when I take out all the bells and whistles and, and I take out all the you know, petroleum-based fibers, I create a more efficient cycle. And if we're reutilizing our scraps, then, you know, we're using less, you know, new, then it ends up costing us less. And then if we end up choosing dyes with our denim that makes our laundry a little bit easier to work with, then everything just makes it a little bit more efficient. And maybe the first few runs of production on something, like we're just making a, a lower amount of units to figure out what's working, and then we can then produce more. 
So we start off with less, you know, which is also difficult because you got to find people that are willing to make only 100 or 200 units of something until you can find if it's going to work and if you like it and if people like it and if it's going to get returns. Um, it's definitely a slower timeline. It's not like a we're going to blow up, you know, because you can't really figure that out until you figure out what's working. You know, for instance, one of our most popular fits is the Billie Jean. It's kind of like our what we call a rigid skinny it's more like a cigarette, but it has like the closest resemblance to what maybe girls are wearing. So it's like a stepping stone into a lot of our other bodies. That's what's funny about fashion is, and the more, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been in this too for a while where everyone's like, oh, we need something new. And I'm, the more I'm starting to realize, I'm like, we actually don't. If I just make good jeans we can just keep making them over and over again it's like if you look at this jean is the same jean that they've been making for 30 years i mean you're looking back you're seeing it <laughs> i'm just like <laughs> why don't we just make good jeans that are you know produced well you know and that fit well they're not going to fit everyone that's denim until we can expand our fit range for body type women's bottoms are always difficult because the bottom part of women's bodies are what change the most and we're talking tight fitting denim that doesn't stretch you know you can be one or two inches you know bigger in your hip area but the same everywhere else and you have to size up one or two and then you have a bigger waistband and things like that so it's like the story of my life yeah so i mean <laughs> I, that's, know, I know the pain well but that's one of the things like we're trying to figure out like what do we do really well like what are the fits what are the washes that we're just like you know that girls want to keep getting from us and then we can limit the amount of offerings that we have and then start increasing the amount of body types that maybe we have you know we can do petite and then we can do you know like wider hips and then we can do tall and you know maybe offer more of a range of uh, of choices i do think that girls love a good pair of jeans right if you find that pair that you love that fits you well you will be loyal to the death yeah i like to think of it as uh, we're doing god's work make uh, girls butts look good It's not perfection, it's progress. I love that thought from Jordan. He and I recorded our conversation at the boyish office in downtown LA, surrounded by racks of jeans. It was truly inspiring to see and feel that they're making zero sacrifice in quality in exchange for being a more responsible company. See those items and Jordan's other favorites in the Finding Inspo shop at vereshop.com slash inspo. And first time Vereshop customers get 20% off with the code INSPOJN. Tell me where you are finding inspo for my conversation with Jordan, and I may read it on a future episode. In a review on Apple Podcasts, Mac Ripken Jr. said, I love to hear about how purposeful Indy is and the things she does. That's a reference back to our very first episode with Indy Lee skincare founder Indy Lee, whose survival of a brain tumor led her to create a cult favorite skincare company. Don't be bashful in going back to hear her story and all of my other fabulous guests. I promise you'll find some inspo. Leave your thoughts and review on Apple Podcasts or reach me on Instagram and Twitter at Alex Barinka or at Apple Podcast. This podcast was produced by me, Alex Barinka, with production and editing support from Wonder Media Network. Special thanks to Mark Franks for helping record this episode. Thank you so much for listening and see you soon.